we actually do a lot of surveys and stuff on our community to determine what are the main features that they're looking for, right? And and we basically want to look for something that's more like 70 or 80% of the people that did do the survey that wanted that special feature. And that would be the feature that we try to aim for. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to build a community before building a product, the surprising and underutilized benefits of building a great relationship with your manufacturers, and why they are moving away from working with influencers that do product reviews of products in their industry and who they are actually working with instead. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan, so check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Today, I'm joined by Colin Chick, CEO from Blue Man. Blue Man is a range of men's hair products created with input from the Blue Man community and was started in 2014 and based out of Vancouver. Welcome, Colin. Thank you, Felix. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So you, we mentioned in the intro that the product is heavily powered by the community. So talk to us more about this. Like, How is the community involved in the brand, in the product? Um, well, the brand was actually created by the community. So in 2014, our founder, Joe, decided that he really wants to make a hair product. So he posted a video on YouTube asking people what they wanted in a hair product, such as the type of hole, the finish, and what the market really lacked. And from there, they started formulating a new product, um, our Blue Mono Original Meraki. Um, the community really pushed that product a lot. We did testing with the, with the community. So we sent out samples throughout the whole year, trying to get people's opinion. What made it good? What's bad about it? And even when the company first started, a lot of the community members took volunteer positions, like our customer service, our product development, our marketing team were all built with the community members. So that's what makes us kind of unique compared to a lot of brands because we're built by the community directly yeah that's amazing so let's talk about that because i think that this is obviously probably your most valuable asset having this community so for anyone else out there that wants to follow the same path it sounds like you got to start off by building this community so talk to us about how that was first established ever before you know before the brand the products or was ever conceived or even thought of it started with a community so let's talk about that like what how did that begin uh so to Community was really built on Joe's following. Um, Joe is a YouTuber, for those who don't know. Um, when we built the community, he was about 250,000 followers on YouTube. And his vision was that he can he wants to connect with every one of his followers on YouTube in a more personal level. So he literally responds to every message that gets sent to him on YouTube. And he talks to them a lot. And one day he decided, like, you know, let's make a community together in on Facebook. So he created a group and he really marketed on his channel to push people into this group. And his philosophy was he wants to make a group where people can share, like, hair tips, hairstyle, product reviews, and just bring his fans 
into a more community talking like uh, aspect and not just watch his videos. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. If you're if you're a YouTuber or even like a podcaster like me, you're spending a lot of time kind of talking to people or you know, they hear your voice but you don't hear from them and they definitely don't hear from each other. So I can see the power of or the desire, the 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 benefit of having a community. So you mentioned that this community actually lives in in Facebook, in a Facebook group, he drove the members, uh, the new members, into the group from his YouTube channel. Can you speak about like what are ways to to engage a community, to get them active? Like, how do you actually get things rolling? You know, once people come in, I think a lot of fear or a lot of hesitation a lot of people have about running or starting a community is like, okay, everyone's here. Now, how do I? It's like you're hosting a party, right? How do you make sure your guests are having fun? How do you? How do you do that? <laughs> so one of the things that our founders did was they actually was really into the community. So they talked a lot in the community, posted some of the personal stuff that's happening with their life, uh, responded to people's um, posts, their questions. And ultimately, they created another separate group. Um, we call it like uh, the VIPs of Blue Mons community. So these are like moderators. So we got volunteer moderators that really love the group and really help push more um, discussions within the group. Um, even today, like we have about 20 moderators that constantly, you know, do post, uh, respond to people and really become really helpful, like leaders in that group. And I think that's really important in getting the community started and building that activeness within the community. Got it. So it's a separate group that is your VIP, like the biggest fans of Joe in this case, yes. and and and, the, and eventually the brand. Is that like a separate like Facebook group? Like, how does that group kind of spend? How do they cl- I guess collaborate or congregate? It's just a it's just a little moderator group. It's just a like, separate channel to just talk about like um, posts that they don't like or people that are being disrespectful or like they discuss like new ideas or new giveaways within the group so we let those moderators take control a lot of the things like kind of giveaways kind of promotions stuff like that within the group so it's not really run by the company as much as the community that makes sense so based on what you have seen in the years of this group running what works to continually grow this group you know outside of Joe driving this you know I think almost 2 million uh, subscribers now to the group are there other ways to you mentioned giveaways and what are some other ways that maybe people that don't have you know a two million i guess following what are some ways that they can grow their group more organically or ways that they don't they can do without driving traffic from another source Mm, having really meaningful discussions basically um not necessarily just about like men's grooming but on our group if you go to our group if you ever do go to our group there's people who talks about their daily life. Like one of our community members at one point posted pictures of his newborn baby and how how much he loves his life, his wife. More personal, more more empathetical discussions are in the group. And that's the stuff I really want to promote a lot. And those go better. Those uh, attract a lot of new users, we feel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard Facebook specifically call out that they are trying to promote more of this meaningful discussion, meaningful conversation that you're talking about. I'm sure that if you're posting something meaningful, you're gonna have a lot more comments and likes and shares. So obviously, Facebook likes that, so they're gonna push that up and certainly will recommend your group more often. So I think that that's important. Now, as a moderator, as someone that is maybe not as a moderator, but as someone that uh, is overseeing the group, maybe it's a group for your brand. Uh, or a group for your community in this case, are there ways for you to encourage this meaningful discussion? I think the way that we treat our moderators really helps get them excited about our uh, our group. Like We treat them like if they were our team members or our employees of Bluemont every single day. And we really give them all the special treatments, such as like you know, let them try out our new products and stuff and show them results of what's happening with our group. Like, how many new people joined, how many people left. And the happiness level of the group really p- motivates them in participating. So it starts off at the top where you are treating the, the moderators, the, 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 the people that are seen as leaders of the group in a way that gets them excited, gets them excited about the brand, gets them excited about the community, makes them happy. And that, that somehow trickles down to the, to the members of the group and encourages them to open up and have these kind of conversations. Yes, definitely. And you know what? They're really happy. Like some of our moderators have been with us for over four years. And they're still very active and still message me every single every single week saying like, you know, all the new changes that they're proposing and new ideas that they have and how how much more people are actually joining the group every single day. Mm. Now, when it comes to things like giveaways, how does that work? Is that something you guys often use in, in the group to encourage engagement or to encourage more people to join the group? We do do it quite often, I think. Um, every quarter we do one giveaway, and uh, these giveaways are are done by the moderators and our marketing team in-house. So they communicate with each other, and then they basically come up with an idea, and we try to work with other sponsors, like other brands, so do a collab giveaway or whatnot. Um, and yeah, it's been pretty successful in that area. Mm-hmm. How does it work? Like you're giving away a, a bundle of products or what's the, I guess, how does that drive your, your marketing by giving away products? Well, usually when we do a collab, like a collab giveaway, so we work with other brands, uh, they give out you know, our products to their fans as well. So we cross kind of cross promotes our community with their, their customers, uh, let's our community our community really likes it because they get, you know, like experience new brands or new giveaways. Um, the decision for like the type of products and everything that does our own like giveaway can range from, we've actually given out airplane tickets or vacation package before, uh, dinner with Joe, just things that we try to make things exciting and different each time. It's not it's never going to be the same, never going to be like just blue mom products, you know? Mm. So, so the idea behind a collaboration giveaway is that the brands that you collaborate with will also share this giveaway and then expose the Bluemont products to their audience. Yes, and we usually don't work with we usually work with brands that are different from Bluemont, uh, while the while the uh, audience is somewhat similar. If that makes sense. Right, so they're not direct competitors, but these are people that would buy similar, pro- yes, buy your product and the brands you're collaborating. Yes, with. with fit our demographic. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, yeah. makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about, so you build this, build this community either by driving traffic from an existing source, if you have some kind of following already, or by cultivating more meaningful discussions or running giveaways to get more people into the group to get other brands to promote your brand or promote your community. So different ways to get people into this group. Now, how big was the group at the time that you guys started asking the group, the community, if they were interested in a, a line of products? The line of products actually came before the community was built, actually. Um, the, the, we decided that we wanted to do a product on the YouTube channel, and then we created the community to do the discussion of what we needed in the product. So it came before. Got, okay, so basically the, com- the community and the product almost like grew hand-in-hand together. It wasn't like there was a, okay, like an actual yeah, Facebook group at the time. Yeah, it was- it's not. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember how how big that group was before there was meaningful discussion around the product? Because you know someone might be again want to take the same approach of building community, almost building like a a, a panel right of, yes. of people that to, to to bounce ideas off of. But they might be like, okay, like how many people do I need before I can actually switch gears and start asking them about products? Do you remember how 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 much how big the group was before it made sense to start asking them these kind of questions about products? Unfortunately, I I was I didn't join Bluemont team until after that that uh, event. Yeah. Okay, that, that that's that's fine. So when you at this point, how how big is this community? Uh, when we start doing most meaningful discussion about the products, I believe it was about ten thousand users. Ten thousand users, and, and, 10, and that's that's bigger is bigger than that today. Today we've hit about fifty thousand uh, group members. Amazing. Okay, so let's talk about the kind of questions you should ask your community then. For anyone, again, out there that wants to bounce ideas, wants to release a product or maybe start a brand new company with a community on Facebook that they've cultivated, how what kind of how does that even begin? Like when do you what, how do you introduce the idea to the community to begin with? Let's first identify the problem. So identify what's missing on the marketplace and the product that you want to try to introduce. Um, for Joe, he realized like there's a really big disconnect in like high quality natural product in the hair space and especially direct to consumer online. So that's where his approach came from. And from there, he just asked, Hey guys, like what are the, comp- what are the products that you guys like as benchmarks? So they people for brands or uh, products that they've been using for the last couple of years. And from there, like, you ask, what are the advantages of that product and what do you dislike of each of the competitors' products? And you take all the good stuff and remove all the bad stuff and basically try to make your ideal product and then find a lab or, you know, chemist mm. to make samples mm. to create that product. Okay, definitely want to talk about the, the actual creation of the product in a second, but you made a ba- you broke it down to basically a simple math problem of adding the stuff that they, they like and removing <laughs> stuff they don't like. And, it, you know, sound, I mean, I think it's just as straightforward as that. You just got to put in the work after you realize the formula. Now, you mentioned before this, so before you, you decide to ask them about, about the particular products that, and brands that they like versus dislike, you mentioned that you had to first define the problem. Can you talk more about this? Like, how, what does it mean? You mentioned that there was a lack of direct-to-consumer brands for, uh, to solve a specific problem. What, what was the actual specific problem that you guys had recognized before asking them more about the products that they're buying in this space? So for this space, 
um, a very high hold product that gives a really matte finish and is still healthy for the hair. Because one of the biggest things for men is like, we need our hair to be very healthy, to have that beautiful shine or the beautiful look. Um, yeah, so that, that was the biggest thing for us, was the whole mm-hmm. the fat finish and the natural uh, ingredients in the product. And, and was this like a hypothesis that, that you and the team had going into this, or did you discover this as you were asking them what they liked and didn't like? This was actually, um, it was a theory from Joe and Ben. Um, Joe is actually, he's a YouTuber, but he's really focused on hair product reviews. (laughs) So he's always been reviewing products and he loves hair products. So that's where it came from. Okay, so they already had an idea behind it and they wanted to then ask people about specifically what hair products they liked and disliked. Do you remember some of the, or do you know some of the the answers that they were getting back about what they liked and didn't like that went into the creation of your product line? Uh, so one of the big things that people really didn't like about hair product was it was really hard to get up people's hair. Like when you wash it, shampoo, a lot of products were made out of uh, oils or wax that didn't wash up properly. Uh, so And it created a lot of tugging. And then when you create a lot of tugging in your hair, you kind of lose your hair even faster, especially for men, right? And men hair loss has been a big issue. Um that being said, people wanted ingredients in the hair product that promoted hair growth to prolong their hair. <laughs> um, and the hold is very important. A lot of men notice that like, you put your hair product in the morning, by noon, it starts flopping. That's another issue that, that we noticed. Um, yeah, those, those are the three main biggest problems mm-hmm. that we noticed. <laughs> Got it. Now, when you are asking a community or asking potential customers these kind of questions, how do you actually prioritize their desires, their wants into actually figuring out that this is a feature that we want to add into our product versus something that is going to be deprioritized and maybe something you guys look at in the future? How do you decide what you should actually add now today in the product you go to market with versus something in version two? Hmm. We for us, I think we do more of a poll, like a poll of people. We, do, we actually do a lot of surveys and stuff on our community to determine what are the main features that they're looking for, right? And, and we basically want to look for something that's more like 70 or 80% of the people that did do the survey that wanted that special feature. And that would be the feature that we try to aim for. Mm, okay, so you first start off with almost like an open-ended discussion about the, the 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 things they like about certain brands, certain products in the space, things they don't like, and then based off of that, do you like kind of uh, rank them based on frequency of of I guess um, uh, comments and uh, of, the, of, of the similar type of comment, and then from that you you create like a poll that is that the approach? Yes, we create a poll, but this is not just for the features of product. We actually do this for the actual product lines too. So we would say like. You know, like for hair products, there's different types of hair products, like clay, there's paste, there's pomade, and there's hair oil, etc. So we actually do a poll for everything that we do with the community. Got it. Now, has there ever been like a, a competing desires where people might want a certain feature, but by adding that feature, it will 
uh, I guess produce adverse effects for something that they definitely don't want. Like you know, like basically conflicting. I guess wants. conflicting features. Yes, there is actually. Uh, high hold products tend to have more tugging. Um, that makes tugging sense. Up. Yeah, it's not as smooth to apply usually, um, and a lot of times what we have to do is we just have to work around it. Like we have to compromise between the two features um, and make that perfect balance with our community. So that's why we do a lot of testing, back and forth testing between our community. Like when we make a product, sometimes it takes up to a year of testing with our community until people are satisfied with the balance. Got it. Okay, so let's let's move on to that that phase of actually creating prototypes and then developing the final version. So you guys got these these uh, these feature or these um, basically the features of the product, and then you moved on to finding like some kind of uh, manufacturer or some kind of chemist. Like, what's the next step for a product like yours once you have an idea of the the results that you want to achieve with a product? So one of the things that most people don't realize is Google is full of resources. You can literally Google anything. So when we first started, we literally Googled a manufacturer that we want to work with. And Google came up with a lot of good results. And you basically have to email every manufacturer, talk to them, see how much it costs to do your R&D, R&D for your prototype. And just work, just work with your manufacturers. Tell them exactly your situation. Like, don't lie. Don't lie about like how big your company is just be very honest and honesty really helps in this situation um it gives you a lot of perks with, with these with these manufacturers because a lot of manufacturers really love working with small companies or startups right yeah why is that because i always hear you know you have a minimum order quantity when you work with manufacturers but you're saying that they like working with startups what, what makes them i guess what, what are they looking for in a startup that makes a startup attractive to a manufacturer because the thing with startup is they can become like a really big company really fast and, and they'll be more dedicated using that manufacturer over a long period of time, right? And a lot of CEOs from these manufacturers love helping young entrepreneurs. It's just a thing that they really love helping them and helping, helping these people succeed. And some of these CEOs like from our manufacturers are like kind of like mentors and they tell us like, really insider stuff about our industry that we would not have been able to Google. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good, good. Um, I guess this raises a good question, which is what are some of the underutilized, I guess, feature, underutilized benefits of a manufacturer that people don't take advantage of? You know, a lot of times people think that, okay, I order these things, they give it to me, and that's it. But you're talking about using them as a mentor. What other things have you discovered that a manufacturer has been able to, uh, to do to be helpful for your business that you think other entrepreneurs might be underutilizing? Okay, so if you build a really good relationship with a manufacturer, they will sometimes tell you about like trade, like trade secrets, like what are the upcoming products that other people are manufacturing or the trends that they see. Like for example, they'll tell us like asthesia makeup is now starting to become a trend prior to it being you know in the consumer market yet. Um, ingredients that are becoming more popular, new ingredients. Um, <clears throat> how other like similar competitors that were the space that we're in, how they're doing the marketing, um, you know, even approximate quantities of orders that they're even even doing and strategies of their supply chain or manufacturing and even their terms and everything like that. Like 
payment terms they will even help us with. Mm-hmm. They want to see you succeed, obviously, because if you succeed, then they're going to... They'll succeed. Gonna, they'll succeed. That makes sense. Yes. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. What, what about some, some lessons learned? Like, are there, What are some mis- early mistakes that you guys made, might have made that you want to warn other entrepreneurs from making when they're working with a manufacturer? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> um, always prototype and always do a first batch sample. Um, prototype and your f- first batch may n- might not always match. Uh, we had situations where it didn't match, and we had to redo the whole uh, first run. Like for our Meraki, our first run was, was really off from the prototype. So don't just assume everything's going to be exactly like the prototype. Right. Right. So there's still a big jump you're saying between getting the prototype and that production run. Yes. Just because a prototype looks good doesn't mean that at scale the production run will also be as good as each uh, as as the prototype. Yes, exactly. Especially for a cosmetic industry, um, when they do the lab sample or the prototype sample, they do it in a lab, right? But when it comes to the full batch manufacturing, they use machines and and a large like. Big, just imagine like big containers boiling up your products or filling your products. Even a slight change in temperature or slight change in the percentage of the ingredients may affect the product significantly. Right. So to, to, in order to see what the product looks like and or, or how it will perform is, is is to get a batch sample and not to reference the prototype. Like that is exactly. the batch sample is the closer you'll get to the product that will get to the customer itself. So let's talk about the, the prototypes. How many prototypes did you guys go through? What was that, that very first one like? The very first one, I believe they did about 50 prototypes, <laughs> 50 wow. alliterations. Um, on average, at Blue Mall, we do easily, sometimes past the 50 mark. One of our products took over two years to prototype. Um, it happens now, all the when, time. Now, when something takes two years, what makes you guys keep on thinking that it's a, a product that's worth investing more time and resources into? Well, for us, it was we believe that that product would be a really good add-on to our, to our product line. And we, it's something that we really needed. Um, we also had a lot of demand from our community, demand from our customers, and we just wanted to make it perfect. There's a lot of companies that does make products, and they don't really care about the full quality of the product as much. But for us, we wanted to make it perfect every single time before we launch our products. And that's why our product development cycle is significantly longer than the average company. Okay, so when you get that prototype, that first iteration or 10th or 20th, what do you do with it? How do you actually figure out if it's good enough or if it needs a certain tweak? So all this is based on feedback from people. So we do, so when we first create a prototype for a new product, we actually give it to our team to try. So we have a lot of guys working in our office and they will try it out and they'll try with Joe. And they'll write down their feedback. The feedback is sent back to our product development team. Um, and that is sent back to the lab, exactly what, we, what we're missing or what we what would like to see more. And we constantly do this until our team on a majority basis like the product. Okay. And once that is done, we then send it out for mass testing. So we send it out to our, to our uh, te- uh, community team that you know, tests our products on a regular basis. And they come back with feedback. And if that's not good, we go back to the drawing board and we for- formulate it again or tweak it. 
until we get it where you know the team and the community are happy with it. And then we do um, another test after in-person test. So we usually host a small little event at a barbershop or whatnot, and we invite our followers, a couple of uh, more dedicated followers to come in and actually try the new product beforehand and see how they like it. If any part of this like testing phase uh, people are not fully satisfied, they will literally go back and retweak again. And sometimes, like sort of some formulas, you can't really tweak it all the way to perfection, in which case we will have to totally reformulate it again and start from step one again. Mm. I, 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 I guess I'm surprised that if the team thinks it's good, it's not enough for you guys to just go and run with it. What no. you, what, are, what are some examples of things that you have discovered that the team's like, this is perfect, this is ready to go, that then you release into the community or test with the community, and then they notice certain things? What are some examples? One of the, thing, one of the things with hair products is every man have different types of hair. So there's fine hair, there's coarse hair, there's Caucasian hair, Asian hair, like and this people have curly hairs, right? So different hair had requires different type of product, unfortunately, different requirements on the hold, um, mostly on the hold side. Uh, for fine hair, the hold is very different from a coarse hair, basically. And because our office is, you know, we don't have like a broad variety of hair types. So that's why there's going to be a difference between the community and our office team. I wonder if that goes into a factor when you guys interview and hire people to see if they have hair that has no, not been represented no. yet. <laughs> that's not our, our uh, hiring, hiring. I'm sure that's not. Office. I'm sure that's not legal either. So, so no, that's I good. don't think so. But that's a good idea, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if someone comes along with uh, a, a, that doesn't that that can fill your quota of uh, hair types, I'm sure that helps a little bit. <laughs> okay, so once you um decide, okay, so you mentioned that. Internal with the team first, see what they like, goes out to the external community where it has a kind of broader sample size. And then you mentioned that you do in-person kind of trials. What is the benefit of doing this in-person? Because it seems like it's going to be even, it's going to go back to basically a smaller subset than the, the, the wide community. So what was the, what's the point of doing in-person trials? So it goes back to the hair, type of hair as well. Um, people in the community and people in our office, there's going to be some type of a demographic that's missed, right? So we want to put those people into the in-person from just random picking people from the community and also gives a little incentive for people in the community that when you're a part of this group, you might be chosen to do an in-person test. And it's a huge bonus. So you get to meet Joe, you get to try a new product, and you get free products too going there. Okay, so you're you're almost like trying to target specific hair types that that you that you weren't happy with in terms of uh, getting the back response. Like if you weren't getting enough responses from like people with curly hair, you might try to run an in person trial to bring in more people with curly hair to see what their feedback is. Yes, and and it's really nice to see them in person because we can see how they use the product, right? When we see how they use their product, we can create content for that as well right you can like create like uh, ad tutorials. copy or ad creative or okay your tutorials to to cater towards the way they use it what are some examples of how differently people use your products um so not many people realize that um there's such thing as a pre-styler and there's a post-styler so a pre-styler is when you use a product when your hair is slightly damp and then you blow dry it to activate it to create that better hold more volume 
uh, especially for finer hairs. Um, and then there's post-styler when you use the product after your pre-styler, so your final product that you use. And those two products may not be the same. You may be using like the Bloomon Original for pre-styler and use Bloomon's uh, Cavalier Clay as a post-styler. So that's one of the different ways of using our products. And these can be mixed around. So some people might not like you know, our original as a pre-styler, but they like a Monarch for a pre-styler. And there's always that mix and match. Um, those are, that's one of the things that are very different for different people, different hair types. Got it. Okay, so now once you've gone through this prototyping phase and you have finally arrived at a product after 50 iterations or however many you guys are happy with, something that can go into production, you mentioned first go out, start with a small batch run. How small are we talking about? And is this something that's like uh, common to ask a manufacturer to do? Uh, yes, of course. You can always ask, you always should be asking minimum order quantities. However, like I said, if you have a really good relationship with the manufacturer, they'll actually do a smaller, even a smaller batch than that. And should, does, it, does it help to explain why you want a smaller batch just to see what this looks like in production? Definitely. Um, so the batch sample doesn't necessarily mean that they do a separate smaller batch for it. It's just they do a maybe like a couple hour run. It this Small batches might still be at over a thousand units, by the way. It's, it's barely like two boxes or a Got dozen. It. Right. Okay, so once you get back this, you know, thousand units, what do you what do you do with the, with those? Um, we basically try to send it to influencers. Um, for marketing wise, we would send it to influencers. Um, we would give it to give it out to our our community leaders. We'll give it to our office people to try it out. Um, our product developer would heavily test the product, make sure that's really consistent in all units. Uh, we send it to our founders. And just do vigorous testing to make sure it's the same as the prototype that was given to us. Got it. Okay, so once you've done that and the prototype the prototype matches the small batch size, you guys are ready to do a full-on production run. What's the marketing plan or how do you guys launch a new product or a new product line to your to the community? So one of the first things that we really want to decide in our um, operation side is how much units we're going to actually create. <laughs> Um, and that is like more towards the number side of things. Um, are we willing, how much money are we willing to invest? How much can we even afford to invest and still have money for the marketing side? Especially for a startup with very limited resources, this is a really crucial part of launching a product. We can't overproduce and we can't, we shouldn't underproduce, right? And once the budget is created, we give it to a marketing team and a marketing team works with that budget. Um, we also give the products to our, uh, sales team, our B2B distribution team, and they determine how much products that they actually need, and we actually uh, we allocate the products. So we'll say, okay, um, B2B gets 30% of all our products, the new launch. Um, Direct-to-consumer gets the remaining. Um, then from there, they run. we actually have a playbook that we have for launching new products in Bluemon, and they follow the playbook while adding a new something new to it something that they want to test out during a launch oh interesting okay can you give us a high level what that playbook looks like for for anyone out there that just has no idea how to launch a product basically how to create hype for a product like being mysterious trying to create that buzz for the new product um how to get people's attention for the product and basically who 
like which marketing channels we're targeting, how we're going to target it, and most cost-effective way of targeting these channels. Now, you mentioned you decide which marketing channels to to target. How do you guys make the decision here? Like how do how does someone, how does an entrepreneur decide how to spend which marketing channels they should spend their time and money? So, for for my, in my opinion, for new um, new entrepreneurs, you want to look at your competitors, what they're doing. Um, usually, with they're spending a lot of on paid ads, or they spend a lot of like money on like influencers. There's a reason for that, right? There's a reason why they're doing that. It's usually because the ROI does make sense for them, right? Um, usually, I would say just follow what they're doing, but doing a smaller scale. So, if they're targeting large influencers, for example. You always target micro influencers, right? Because the most micro influencers cost less, usually doing it for free compared to large influencers. So it's easier to just follow what other people in your industry are doing and not make that mistake. And then when you do have that extra money, then you can try different channels that your competitors are not trying. God. Okay, so you're basically looking for what the competitors are spending a ton of money on, uh, but then obviously take the same approach but at a scale that your Smaller budget scale. can support right okay that makes sense and you mentioned targeting on these channels what, what do you mean by that so there's different channels out there right now like uh even new channels such as like uh tiktok for example that's a really new social media channel um when we say targeted like find a way that we can fit our product into that channel without being too heavily like uh, salesy, be more subtle, um, and just get our product get our product in front of people so people know about it rather than to just sell it. Okay, so basically try to create like content that's native and organic for that yes. that channel. And I was just speaking of TikTok, do you, is there a lot of effort you put in here? I think it's obviously a channel that a lot of people are are interested in, but don't yes. know exactly how to market on there. Give, can you give us any pointers uh, with when it comes to TikTok? TikTok is so new right now. It's it's undetermined, even for even for us. We've mm-hmm. been doing little experiments here and there, but we haven't really come to any conclusion yet. It's still too new. Right. Okay. What what, what about another channel that's maybe more established that you guys definitely try to hit on? Like, is it Facebook, Instagram, YouTube? Like, what's the next kind of uh, channel that you guys almost always want to spend effort, lots of effort and resources on? Um, influencers has always been our biggest market for us. Um, it's actually different types of influencers. So when we first started, we focused more on men's style, men's fashion, and men's hair. And we're slowly moving away from that, more to a lifestyle, um, like athletics, um, kids even. So those are different channels within, this, within Instagram that you can try to target or untouched, different, untouched markets, basically. Okay, so you're moving from 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 influencers that are specifically using the products that maybe people almost even expect to see, kind of sponsorships and and product reviews into less related channel. What's the what's the thinking behind that? Like why why move away from kind of almost I guess more of the low hanging fruit of 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 these of these influencers? One of the thinking behind it was that these type of influencers, especially in our market. Um, fashion influencers, they tend to be oversaturated. They market a lot of different products, like skincare, multiple different hair products, and it doesn't seem as authentic a lot of times. Um, like if you see an influencer marketing three, four different hair products, are you going to 
really trust in that influencer mm. in their hair product selection, it's kind of hard to do so. So what we realize is markets that uh, or channels of inf- types of influencers that don't haven't ever marketed hair product before seems to be a better fit and a better uh, return on investment. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Now, how do you determine, once you decide, okay, I want to focus more on on lifestyle uh, influencers, how do you decide what kind of influencers are going to be a good a good match, You know, especially once you're moving away from the more direct kind of like hair products, men's grooming influencers into a little more uncharted territories? How do you try to make sure that they will still be a good fit for the brand? So, um, to find the right influencer, we our team actually brainstorms and look at each of the influencers that are coming through our door. And they determine like, hey, does this person have good hair? Does this person have high engagement? Like, are the followers very dedicated to them? What's the response rate when you do a post? Um, and how saturated they are in their, in their uh, paid ads, right? So even if they've never done a hair product before, if they've done a lot of like promotions, that's also really not the best sign for us. We want someone who doesn't really do much promotions, maybe just support one or two brands kind of thing. And that's what we would look for. Right. Just just to kind of avoid that almost like ad blindness that people might develop from seeing the same influencer constantly advertising products, constantly advertising the same type of products. You try to find a influencer that's not doing much advertising at all, you're saying. Basically, which is really hard. Mm -hmm. Definitely. (laughs) That's why you said that you're trying to focus on the micro-influencers, the ones that might not be so big that they are constantly getting these deals. Yes, micro-influencers are really good in ROI in general. They tend to have much higher engagement. They cost a lot less than a major influencer. And they really put more effort because they're still small, so they really need to put that effort in and making their content better. Mm-hmm. Now, when you find when you when you identify a micro influencer that or influencer at all that you want to work with, what's uh, how do you, how do you get in touch with them and, and what's the, what's the pitch that that seems to work? Like, what does an influ- micro influencer or influencer care about that gets them to say yes? I think one of the biggest thing is that do they feel comfortable and that does it really represent them when they represent this brand? Right? Does this brand fit their lifestyle or fit them? And I think that's the most important part of getting that influencer to take on this brand as an ambassador or to promote it. So let's let's talk a little about the website. So is so the website is that all done in house? You guys hired an agency for that? Like how how was that built? Uh, the first iteration of the website uh, on Shopify. Actually, we actually didn't do Shopify to start. We actually did it on WooCommerce in the beginning, and that was done in house. Um, then we switched to Shopify, and it's been amazing. Shopify is amazing. Awesome. So, so is that is that was a theme? Did you guys have like a customized theme, or how did you guys build the the Shopify site? We started with a theme first, and then we customized that theme. And later on, we hired a Shopify um, uh, web design firm to help us make the next one. So the current theme was made by an agency. Um, it was a lot more costly, but it had a really good return. You mentioned so you basically uh, redesigned the site at, at least once. What, what was the, the the intention? What was the goal of the redesign? Like, what are some things that you guys wanted to to fix essentially in the next version? So one of the things that that has been a cons- uh, early on problem for us was identifying our brand. So our, a lot of our marketing materials 
was too scattered because it was made by a lot of times it was made by uh, volunteers, right? Because the volunteers took our did our marketing for us a lot of times, and it was really inconsistent. So our websites, um, our website design didn't really match our branding. So first iteration, we try to make it closer to our branding and make everything consistent, the font and etc. And on the last revision, the third revision, we really focused just on the branding, and that really helped on the conversion rate. Can you say more about that when 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 you talk about branding? If someone out there has a a, a site already and they they want to make improvements to it, you mentioned that branding has made the has made a, a huge difference. What 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 did you like tactically change, or what what did you actually change on the website to improve the branding on the website? Um. So one of the things is making sure that all our photos or our assets on our website match the type of people or type of demographic we're targeting, um, having high-quality images, uh, having those men with nice hair, hairstyle that could be created with Bloomon products, um, making all our images consistent as well. Like Each product shot must be very consistent to the next one. Um, a lot of people don't really do that. Um, font, font uh, the font colors, color of the website should match the packaging of your product. That's another thing that we didn't do really well in the beginning. Uh, and the messaging as well. Uh, the copywriting must match our, our actual product and what the message that we try to communicate to our customers. Got it. So it sounds like uh, one thing is to invest in the photography, lots of images of people uh, you know, representing the lifestyle that you want the brand to represent. And then also, I think one important thing that you mentioned that not a lot of people do is that you kind of want some consistency between the photos too. Like it was actually all done in like one photo shoot, one session rather than like randomly pulled together. You found that that makes a, a big difference. Okay. That made a huge difference. <laughs> And you mentioned also match the packaging of the website, the colors and maybe the fonts to the actual, or sorry, the, the website rather, to the, the packaging colors and the fonts. I think that's also something that, that, that can sometimes be overlooked too, which is interesting. Got it. Okay, so now, now when, you, um, when, when you guys are writing this website, are there any tools or apps that you use either on your site itself, on the back end, or in what comes to marketing that you guys really rely on? Um, there's definitely a lot. Actually, Shopify has a lot of great <laughs> plugins. Uh, one of the first plugins we actually installed was actually called No Fraud, a uh, credit card fraud. Um, that was really, that saved us a, like thousands of dollars a year. Uh, we used, uh, Privy, the, the pop-up, uh, product reviews plugin, uh, recharge the recurring bill payments. We have some SEO soft plugins. We even an inventory planner as well. Yeah, so there's a lot actually <laughs> that we use. Mm-hmm. Now we talk about the pop-up on the site. What is the pop-up? Is it to collect the email address? What's the intention of the pop-up? The pop-up intention was to uh, get subscribers to our uh, uh, email list to give them offers, launches, updates, uh, and really just collect the info as well as giving them like coupon as well. Mm-hmm. What 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 uh what is the incentive or what was work for you guys to get someone to subscribe to the email list? I believe one of the best thing was actually understanding our customers at that area. Um, one of our, our pop ups actually asked like what type of hair you have, and we try to recommend when the when they get their first email, recommend what type of product that would fit best for the hair. Oh, interesting. So you're not like you know a lot of sites have a pop up and they'll say 
put your email in, you get ten, you get ten percent off. But you guys are asking them a question first: yes. is a like what kind of type of hair they have, and then you use that to segment the emails so that the product recommendations are more specific to them. Yes, and that's one of the biggest thing is like what product works for your hair, right? And even in our customer service, we get that question asked a lot. Like, what is the best hair product for me? And not, and it's not always necessarily going to be a Bluemon product. And we allow our customer service to even promote other products, or even our competitors' products, as long as it works with our customers. That's that's interesting. That that that's probably like the most valuable field that you have in your database is like the type of hair yeah. that they that they have yes. because it allows you to give them a, a solution to a problem so directly now when it, when you are what, what what tool do you use for for, for emailing what's the software that you guys use to power all of this uh email software i think we use uh, ret, uh retention science have you heard okay. of that uh, um, no i have not heard it's an ai based uh email marketing software very cool it sounds like uh very useful for personalization that makes yeah. sense Awesome. So, so you know, appreciate you coming on, Colin. So, I'll leave you with this last question, which is, what needs to happen this year in 2020 for you to consider the year a success? For 2020, I believe that one of the biggest goals for Bluemont this year is to reach more, reach more customers, reach help more people, like change their hairstyle, change their hair game, and really build that confidence out of these people. Awesome. So Bluemon is at B-L-U-M-A-A-N.com. Thank you again so much for your time, Colin. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your experience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.